Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith, our ancestors received approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. Let us worship God. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of the Lord. For God spoke, and it came to be. God commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom the Lord has chosen as his heritage. Eternal God, creator of all that is and ever will be, you are the giver of all life and the source of all good. We abide in your love and rest in your grace. Therefore, we thank you and we praise you, O source of all our blessings, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Grace and peace to you, and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those of us gathered here in these pews, as well as everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather in the name of the Lord, and because it is in Christ's name that we have gathered, that means our word of welcome is one that is always extended with no qualifiers whatsoever attached to it. All are welcome in Christ's house, so all are welcome here. We'd like to invite everyone, members and guests alike, please to sign the friendship tag. You'll find that on your pew. You may send it down the pew and back again, and we will have the advantage of each other's names as we conclude worship to greet one another. 
We'd also be delighted if everyone would come for a time of fellowship in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just out this door to the right of the pulpit and down, no, to the left of the pulpit. Uh, your left, my right. Um, and go to Old Buttonwood Hall down a short hallway there. You will find our deacons have prepared some light refreshments, but most importantly, the opportunity to gather together in fellowship. I'd like to particularly welcome to our pulpit today the Reverend Cindy Jarvis, one of my dear friends and colleagues. Cindy retired from active ministry of, after 45 years, most recently, after having spent 23 of those at the Presbyterian Church of Chestnut Hill, and we are so fortunate that Cindy has made us her home, and so I am delighted to Cindy, and grateful to Cindy for preaching this morning. I'll highlight as well a couple of opportunities that stand in the announcements portion of your bulletin for our TNTs. You have a fellowship activity coming up on the uh, 17th of June at 1.30. You can email Elaine Hanby at youngadults at fpcphila.org for more information or to join the group. And we do continue to ask for those who have a story to tell to be part of our time capsule project as part of our 325th anniversary. That time capsule will be sealed up until our 350th. So if you would like to have your story immortalized by the children of this congregation, just reach out to Karen Marston. She would love to hear from you. With all these things noted, we now continue our worship with our confession of sin. If we say that we have no sin, then we are strangers to the truth and we deceive only ourselves. But the very same Bible that offers us such a conviction also offers us the assurance that God, who is merciful and just, will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Therefore, we need never fear confession, only to draw near to our Maker in honesty and candor. So you are invited to do just that, first together and then in silence. Let us pray. You come, creator of new beginnings, to strip us bare of all pride in place and privilege, to slip the latch on fears and worries which keep us bound from following you, to stand with us when death and sin threaten to stop us in our tracks. You come, redeemer of sinners, to shine light in the dark alleys of our hearts, to pick up the pieces of our broken lives again and again, to give us a glimpse of the human beings we were fashioned from dust to be. You come, spirit of understanding, to disarm the world's violence with love, to end the divisions that we have deepened in your name, to raise up a community entrusted with your message of reconciliation for the sake of all people. Have mercy on us and help us more and more to obey your call, to be your disciples, and to live in your love to our life's end, through Jesus Christ our Lord. proof of God's amazing love is this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Christ rose for us, Christ reigns in power for us, Christ even prays for us. As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our iniquities from us. Believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Our first reading of scripture today comes to us from the book of Genesis. We read from the 12th chapter and then again from the 15th chapter. Listen for the word of God to us this day. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages toward Negeb. After all these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my household is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. May God bless to our hearing and our understanding this reading of God's holy word. The epistle lesson comes from Paul's letter to Christians in Rome. Continue to listen with the help of the Holy Spirit for God's word. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of all of us, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations. According to what was said, so numerous shall be your descendants. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what God had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words it was reckoned to him were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. 
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. On the morning when we ordain and install officers who will lead First Presbyterian Church into God's future, even as we continue to remember and mark this congregation's founding and long history, I invite you to revisit a definition of faith spoken to an unknown congregation by an unknown preacher not long after Christ's church came into being. As a preface to the preacher's romp through the history of saints who led God's people from the beginning, he, or she, some say Priscilla, reminds an anxious congregation that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Assurance and conviction. Two words that stop just short of certainty. Two words that require a leap. Two words that depend on faith. One said from the outside in. The other acted on from the inside out. Ponder for these few moments the assurance of things hoped for. We seek assurance from another when the way ahead is uncertain, because try as we might, we cannot assure ourselves. We cannot say that word to ourselves. Think of a doctor's assurance, a parent's, a teacher's, a friend's assurance, or even the providential assurance of a stranger. Words in the dark that turned out to be just enough to go on, especially when an illness or an accident, a failure or an unbearable loss, a broken spirit or a broken heart has rendered the future unknowable, unreliable, unimaginable. I repeat, assurance is a word from the outside in. Of course, assurances can be false. Well-meaning people sometimes offer words of assurance rendered hollow by grief. Untrustworthy people often hawk assurances that have more to do with securing their own good fortune than with God's endlessly surprising reversals. All of us have voted for one or two of those along the way. I also think it is the case that when we are vulnerable, we are more likely to throw in our lot with the assurance we most want to hear rather than the assurance we most need to hear. Then there are God's assurances scattered throughout the pages of Scripture, assurances that promise a future when humanly there is no future or assurances that promise Emmanuel, an unseen presence accompanying us through the valley of the shadow. But faith in God's promises, says another preacher by the name of Walter Brueggemann, faith in God's promises is for us as it always was for Israel, a massive assurance grounded on flimsy evidence. So it was with Abram in the 12th of Genesis. 
At the beginning of Abram's story, God commands him to leave country, kindred, his father's house, and to go to the land God will show him. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. A word of assurance from the outside in. Abram went as God told him. He was about 75 when he and Sarai and his nephew Lot set out for they knew not where. Along the way, Abram receives another assurance from God that God will give him all the land that he can see and offspring as numerous as the dust. So Abram journeys on, defeating kings, rescuing Lot. But then, after these things, in the 15th chapter of Genesis, God gives Abram a third word of assurance, an assurance that anticipates Abram's state of mind by this time. Do not be afraid, Abram, God says. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. After these things, Abram is not buying it. So he asks God for evidence. Evidence in the face of Sarai's continued barrenness, which is to say, in the face of no future, no heir to God's promises. What will you give me? For I continue childless. Well, not exactly childless, but that's a whole other sermon. In response to Abram's doubt, Rather than telling him to look to the dust from whence he came, God tells Abram to look up. Look toward the heavens and count the stars. If you are able to count them, so shall your descendants be. Talk about flimsy evidence. Yet in the very next sentence, we read, Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Faith as God's gift of the conviction of things not seen, causing Abram to act contrary to the evidence at hand from the inside out. Paul Webster defines conviction as a strongly held belief, a, defini a definition that brings, at least to my mind, assent to a proposition or to a doctrine. In the context of Abram's story, conviction has more to do, I think, with being given a destiny that you do not choose, but that chooses you. It has to do with an inner necessity that sometimes turns you clean around in your tracks and finds you saying in so many words, here I stand, I can do no other. Often conviction is formed on the crucible of fiery trials and deep waters, where you come to trust in your heart or believe in your bones that though you may die for the sake of this conviction, literally, or socially, or politically, or professionally, death has no power over you. And even though you know you could be dead wrong, something deep inside of your being compels you to take that leap of faith, which is the conviction of things not seen. Still, 
I cannot help but wonder, what led Abraham? What leads any of us to take that leap? Turns out, because of God's grace, it is the opposite of certainty. According to Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg, a most amazing reader of Torah, there is so much more going on in Abram's story with God, and therefore with our, our story with God, than meets the eye. Zornberg first reminds us that Abraham's active spiritual life begins and ends in indeterminacy, in not knowing. Go to the land that I shall show you. God says at the beginning of the conversation. And at the end, God says, sacrifice your son, your beloved, your only son on a mountain. I'll show you. From beginning to end, precisely because God does not reveal to Abram his destination. A conversation, and so a relationship, and ultimately a trust, develops. That is to say, and honestly, I think you should move to the edge of your pews to hear this, where there is total revelation, there is no room for language. Put another way, where there is complete certainty, there is no room for the relationship of trust that is faith to grow between creature and creator. In the veiling of truth, in the indeterminacy of our destination, in God hiding the future from our knowing, Zornberg acknowledges that there is distress for a human being who wants to know clearly what is God's will. Yet this distress generates an intense receptivity to every shred of communication that comes from God. If you were, if you were in a sanctuary on the Sunday after 9-11, you know something of what Zornberg means. I remember standing in the pulpit and looking into the fearful eyes of my beloved flock, their eyes looking back at me. After all these things had befallen us on that perfectly clear autumn day. Each of us had been called out of our individual existence and into worship as a people intensely receptive to every shred of communication that might come from God. Something of our hope for our life together, our future, had been shattered, literally terrorized. We were in distress. We wanted to know God's will for us going forward. Yet lacking total revelation, there was room for language for the assurance of God hidden in the words of scripture and in the word that became flesh in the fullness of time and in the words of our prayers reaching heavenward. Do you hear the difference between the conviction that took hold of Abram and the conviction that sent terrorists on death-dealing missions? It's the difference between faith and certainty. To wit, it is characteristic of God's relation to the righteous, another commentator says, 
that God allows them time for questioning and wonder and only reveals the determined reality afterwards, ultimately. The word for this in Hebrew is meteh, to wonder, gaze, be astonished, be plunged into a sense of the unfathomable. I think this is why God tells Abram to look to the heavens, placing his present distress in the context of God's eternity. And while the few verses of Abram's story we read today could lead us to think Abram's response of faith was instantaneous, I suspect this is one of those places in Scripture where the rabbis believe God included an unwritten pause, a silence meant to draw us in, to cause us to wonder as we have just been wondering, making us, as Zornberg says, exiles in time where selves are born. Exiles in time where selves are born. In this condition, she continues, where nothing is assumed, a radical astonishment abides, an intense listening, and only afterwards, revelation. Truth be told, this condition of radical astonishment and intense listening can last a whole lifetime. The word for that condition in Hebrew, Zornberg tells us, is hibah, hibah, the unmapped space and time that we call freedom, in which to nurture love. Hibah is the organic relation that is developed in spite of, or perhaps only because of, the vicissitudes and travails of a world in which God does not reveal God's meanings. And yet, you and I confess, through a mirror darkly, that God does, God has. For in the fullness of time, the God who once spoke assurance to Abram from the outside in became the word dwelling with us and in us from the inside out. Word made flesh of our flesh. Word mediated in the life, death, and resurrection of a first century Jew. Therefore, in the hibah, the freedom we have been given in him, we know faith as the gift of a meeting, a meeting in which we become free to hear the word of grace which God has spoken in Jesus Christ in such a way that in spite of all that contradicts it, you and I, may once for all exclusively and entirely hold to God's promise and guidance. On this Sunday, when we ordain and install officers to shepherd us into God's future, and in a year when we look back over the long way this congregation has come, it all depends on faith. God has chosen precisely these saints he will soon ordain and install to lead us into the unmapped space and time that we call freedom. And there, to nurture love, to keep alive the conversation between creature and creator, to question and to wonder, 
to look up and be astonished, to hold hands and take the leap together that faith is, as those who have glimpsed enough of the destiny that has chosen us in Jesus Christ to take the next step toward the love we have been promised in him. Thanks be to God. Having lifted our voices in songs of praise, having confessed our sin and been assured of God's pardon, having read God's word and received it proclaimed, let us now affirm our faith. What do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, 
the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, proclaims the psalmist, by which it is meant that all that we have and all that we are is a gift from God entrusted to our care for this season that is our lives. So, in generosity and in gratitude, let us now return our morning offering.
eternal God, from the abundance that you have given us, we have all that we need. Indeed, you have given us more than we could ever need. So accept, we pray, this token that we return to you as a commitment to know you, to love you, and to serve you. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. At this point in our service, we come to the ordination and installation of this newest class of elders and deacons. Hear these words of scripture. There are varieties of gifts, but it is the same Lord who is served. There are different ways of serving God, but it is the same Lord who is served. God works through each person in a unique way, but it is God's purpose that is accomplished. To each is given a gift of the Spirit to be used for the common good. Together we are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We are all called into the church of Jesus Christ by baptism and marked as Christ's own by the Holy Spirit. This is our common calling, to be disciples and servants of our servant Lord. Within the community of the church, some are called to particular service as deacons, as elders, and as ministers of word and sacrament. Ordination is Christ's gift to the church, assuring that his ministry continues among us, providing for ministries of caring and compassion in the world, ordering the governance of the church, and preaching the word and administering the sacraments. Representing the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, the session of the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia now ordains Natalie Amoa to the office of elder and installs her to service on the session. The session also installs Craig Bodoff, Dave Hudding, Phil Monocle, Evelyn Schwartz, and Alan Skimmel to active service. The session ordains Gary Christensen, Dan Seekins, and Shay Stewart to the office of deacon and installs them on the board. The session also installs Jack Melvin to active service. Ordination calls the whole church to renewed commitment and reminds us all to bear gladly the yoke of Christ given to us in the covenant of baptism. And as you are called out to particular service, you must make public answer to these questions. Do you trust in Jesus Christ, your Savior, acknowledge him Lord of all and head of the church, and through him believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, do you? Do you accept the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be, by the Holy Spirit, the unique and authoritative witness to Jesus Christ in the church universal, and God's word to you, do you? Do you sincerely receive and adopt the essential tenets of the Reformed faith as expressed in the confessions of our church as authentic and reliable expositions of what scripture leads us to believe and do? And will you be instructed and led by these confessions as you lead the people of God? Do you and will you? Will you fulfill your office in obedience to Jesus Christ under the authority of Scripture and be continually guided by our confessions, will you? Will you be governed by our church's polity and will you abide by its discipline? Will you be a friend among your colleagues in ministry, working with them subject to the ordering of God's word and spirit, will you? Will you in your own life seek to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, love your neighbors, and work for the reconciliation of the world, will you? Do you promise to further the peace, unity, and purity of the church? Do you? Will you seek to serve the people with energy, intelligence, imagination, and love? Will you? To the deacons, will you be a faithful deacon, urging charity, teaching concern, and directing the people's help to the friendless and those in need? In your ministry, will you try to show the love and justice of Jesus, will you? To the elders, will you be a faithful elder watching over the people 
providing for their worship, nurture, and service? Will you share in government and discipline, serving in the governing bodies of the church and in your ministry, will you try to show the love and justice of Jesus Christ? Will you? Do we, the members of the church, accept Gary Christensen, Jack Melvin, Dan Steakins, Chase Stewart, <coughs> Natalie Moa, Craig Bardoff, Dave Hudding, Bill Monocle, Evelyn Schwartz, and Alan Skimmel as deacons and elders chosen by God through the voice of this congregation to lead us in the way of Jesus Christ. Do we? Do we agree to encourage them to respect the decision of the session and to follow our officers as they guide us, serving Jesus Christ, who alone is the head of the church? Do we? As we now pray for those who are being ordained and installed, I invite those being ordained to kneel and for all elders and ministers of word of sacrament to come and to participate in the laying on of hands. If you have been ordained to that office in any tradition, you are invited to come and to participate in the laying on of hands. Let us pray. Eternal God, we give you thanks for your steadfast faithfulness to us. In every age, you have called forth leaders to serve you and equipped them with your gifts. Among your people, Israel, you anointed prophets, priests, and rulers. You called pastors and teachers, bishops, elders, and deacons to build up your church. With Moses, the 70 elders bore the burdens of your people, ministering in the power of your spirit. Alongside the apostles, deacons cared for all in need and guarded the community's peace. In the church, deacons, elders, and pastors served together so that your whole people might be equipped for ministry and built up into the full unity of Christ. For your servants in every age, O God, and for the Church of Jesus Christ, we give you all thanks and praise. God of grace, pour out your Holy Spirit on Gary, Jack, Dan, and Chase, that they may be faithful deacons in the Church. Give them openness to the Holy Spirit's leading, that they may see and serve wherever there is need. Train them in the school of prayer that they may express the compassion of Christ for the poor and friendless, the sick, the grieving, and the troubled. Equip them with courage to bear the gospel into the halls of power and to communicate your presence and might among those who are powerless. In everything, give them the mind of Christ who did not grasp at greatness but emptied himself to become a servant of your reign Give them joy in their walk of faith and a sure sense of your abiding presence for their work of ministry. God of grace, pour out your Holy Spirit on Natalie, Craig, Dave, Phil, Evelyn, and Alan, that they may be your faithful elders in the church. Give them prudence and sound judgment, wisdom and courage, to order the life of the church in obedience to your word. Nourish them in the life of the Holy Spirit, that they may exercise the ministry of discipline with humility and compassion. Guide them in governance on this session and in every court of the church, that they may be servant leaders following Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life to set others free. Give them joy in their walk of faith, and a sure sense of your abiding presence for their work of ministry. Gracious God, through the waters of baptism, 
you have claimed all of us as your own and called us to share in Christ's ministry. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon this entire congregation that we may discern the gifts that you have given, calling them forth from one another, and together use these gifts for the good of all. In obedience to Christ and in the unity of his Spirit, may we proclaim good news, make disciples, be light and leaven, share our bread, offer a cup of cold water, wash one another's feet. Make us strong in Christ to live as your people and to show forth your saving love in the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. And hear our prayers as we are bold to pray as our Savior taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I invite those accompanied here at the front to extend the right hand of fellowship and then to return to their seats as we charge these newest elders and deacons. You are now deacons and elders in the Church of Jesus Christ and for this congregation. Be faithful and true in your ministry so that your whole life will bear witness to the one crucified and risen, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
Go forth now into the world in peace and be of good courage. Hold fast to all that is good and render to no one evil for evil. But strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, heal the afflicted, honor all people. Loving and serving the Lord, rejoicing in the very power of the Spirit and the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be and abide with you now and even forevermore. Amen. Thank you.